You crossed my path first on the 4th of January. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. And at the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now with this last business in France, you have placed me in such a position by your continual persecution that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is becoming an impossible one. Have you any suggestion to make? You must drop it, Mr. Holmes. Greetings, mortals, and welcome to another episode of A Podcast But Evil. I'm Dan Oster. I'm Doug Leaf. And today on the show, we are exploring what Doug tells me is actually our second nemesis. In Mm -hmm. the past, we did Lex Luthor, of course, is the nemesis of Superman. But today, it is none other than the villainous Professor Moriarty, the world's most evil mathematician. (laughs) The nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. Second most evil mathematician, if you count the Unabomber. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. The most evil fictional mathematician. And we have a guest today. I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Uh, They're doing something a little different this time. He is a respected partner from the prestigious law firm Paul Hastings, Janowski and Walker. Now he's retired and enjoying gardening in Blue Apron. Uh, one day you might even see what that PlayStation business is all about. He keeps talking about it. He's a lifelong Sherlock Holmes fan. I know him as dad. I don't know how we got this guy. Please welcome <laughs> Ronald Oster to the program. Hello, Hello. Ronald. Uh, thank you, Danny. I'm Dan's dad. Okay, that's my <laughs> title. Hey, Doug. How are you doing? Hey, how are you, sir? <laughs> Good. When we were thinking about fans, we always like to bring on super fans onto the show. Whenever we have somebody who, like when we did Q from Star Trek, we brought in uh, Aaron to uh, help us talk about that because he's a big Star Trek buff. And we were thinking of fans, and I was like, well, you know, this is something that my dad and I have shared for a long time. We've always enjoyed these stories and have sort of explored them in different ways. So he was sort of a no-brainer for me. Yeah. I was thinking uh, when when you said you were going to bring your dad on and you talked a lot about that relationship that you two had kind of forged in Sherlock Holmes stories. And I was very curious as to why Sherlock Holmes spoke to you so much. I, I have my suspicions, but I'd love to hear what this character means to you in your own words. To me, uh, he's sort of the original superhero. I'm glad you mentioned Superman and Lex Luthor because... You know, Sherlock Holmes was always had a superpower, and that was his intellect. I mean, and and that I think made it attractive. And and uh, the character that we're talking about, Moriarty, the nemesis of Sherlock Holmes, I think of him as the man who killed Sherlock Holmes. For ten years, Sherlock Holmes was dead, and Moriarty was the guy that did it. And then Arthur Conan Doyle brought him back. Mm-hmm. So, bringing back superheroes who die has been done before. Hey, you know, there was a big event where Superman died and they brought him back. So you're right. The parallels there are many. Uh, Dad, you were telling me a little bit about this when I was doing my producer phone call with you before the program, about your first experience with these stories. And I think you said it was probably in high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It doesn't, I mean, if you have a specific memory, that's great. But just how did you first find yourself reading these stories? I was trying to think and I really couldn't remember, but it seemed to me that just about everybody as I went through life ran into a tremendous number of people who had liked Sherlock Holmes when they were younger. And and it probably started around high school uh, for me. But I I think the appeal of it was the appeal that everybody's had, that it's, you know, a sense of bringing order out of a chaotic world. The world of Sherlock Holmes was in Victorian England, and we all have images of that. I mean, you know, the fog creeping in, the horses clip-clopping on the... uh, on the pavement. Everything about Victorian London just makes a a great stage for all of that. So I enjoyed it and just ran into people throughout my life. And Dan, when you enjoyed it as well, that was something that was fun too. 
Yeah, it is a very evocative setting. In fact, this podcast has spent some time there already when we did Jack the Ripper. And yeah, I seeing, think what was so interesting. And we've done the Jack Invisible the, Man as well. It was also that's true. We character. did just just do the Invisible Man. And well, Jack the Ripper the, is right in that time zone. I mean, that's it. That's exactly what we're talking about. And there has definitely been some non-canonical stories that have pitted Sherlock Holmes against Jack the Ripper. It's a pretty obvious place to go, but it's a very evocative setting. You know what I like about these stories is that it's so distinctly British. I think very rarely. Is Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson, are they in mortal danger? You know, it happens. But a lot of the time, it's just like a puzzle that's being solved. It's very gentlemanly. It's not really what we're used to, I think, with a lot of American storytelling, which tends to be a lot of, you know, explosions and gunplay. Yeah, he, they don't use a lot of brute force in that. I mean, from time to time, Sherlock will, uh, he's a boxer. And he's and he, of course, when we're talking about Moriarty, there's the famous struggle at the Reichenbach Fall. So he can be physical, but it's unusual. Well, and, unless uh, you're uh, Guy Ritchie, in which case we're going to take a couple <laughs> of sentences and blow that out into two films. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Where suddenly he's able to slow down time and break people's ankles and do all that stuff. And I think what's interesting about the relationship between Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty is this is the first villain that we've done in this pattern where – the villain is really the dark mirror version of the hero. He's everything the hero is, except the morality is flipped. That's right. I mean, people have mentioned that and noted over the years that how Moriarty is sort of the evil genius that uh, went bad. And uh, Holmes was good. The other thing about Moriarty, too, he only appears, I think, physically in one episode. And that's the one where he and Holmes go off the cliff. The final re- problem, I believe. The final called. problem mentioned a, n- a number of times and some of the other stories, but they're just kind of references. So he was really introduced by Conan Doyle as a character to be the nemesis of Holmes and to lead to Holmes' demise. So it was a one-shot deal. Uh, Doug, I wanted to ask you, because Dad and I, uh, I'm going to call him Dad, how unprofessional <laughs> Ronald and I uh, <laughs> kind of shared these. It's Mr. These encounter- to use. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He prefers that, that I refer to him as Mr. <laughs> Sir. Uh, either, but- either one. <laughs> we have a real uh, Henry Jones Sr. Uh, junior relationship. Doug, I'm curious about your first encounter with these stories. You know, my first encounter, I don't remember my first specific encounter with, with Sherlock Holmes. It probably was through some sort of an adaptation or like what's interesting is there were, I remember a lot of cartoons when you're a kid are kind of an interesting way to show you versions of characters. Like whether it was a Looney Tunes cartoon or something, but they would do a Sherlock Holmes bit. And as a kid, you've never seen Sherlock Holmes before. And then eventually you kind of work the connection back as you get older and go, Oh, okay. When they put Daffy Duck in that cap, He's being this famous character. Now I know what they're talking about. Right. right. Um, so yeah. I'm sure my introduction to Sherlock Holmes was something like that when I was a kid in the 80s. You know, um, that uh, tracks, but, as the kids say. But eventually, of course, I did start reading some of the Conan Doyle stories for real. And they appealed to me because when I was growing up, one of the things I loved was solving puzzles. And these stories are puzzles. They're They're from an era of crime solving when we don't have fingerprints, we don't have DNA, there's, you know, you, you have so little resources and every solution to this has to be this almost magical deduction. And Conan Doyle, being the astute mystery writer that he is, is careful to always try and give the reader 
enough clues that maybe they can get there on their own. Do you think that that's really, is that really expected of the reader? Is that really fair that uh, someone could solve it? I I think it is fair because I think that's right. I think he does put enough there. There's no kind of out of left field solutions. I mean, you may not be able to pick out the solution, but as you look back over it, it's like when Sherlock is explaining how he can tell this character came from Afghanistan and was one. He goes through it, and it's all you, you. At the end, you say, "Well, yeah, right. Of course, that's true." And so <laughs> it's there. I mean, the pieces are there. He really is the original mansplainer, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had my great intellect, you would see that the Ghostbusters reboot is actually not very good. <laughs> yeah, he's not the first. He's not the first detective in terms of this kind of fiction. Like Edgar Allan Poe had yeah. uh, written Murders in the Rue Morgue and some other stories before this, but he really Conan Doyle through Sherlock Holmes created this extraordinarily indelible character. That is everything that comes after this is some sort of imitation or at least owes a debt to Sherlock Holmes, whether it's, you know, the Hannibal Lecter stories, you know, the come later, like Bone Collector, all of these like serial killer books. It's all versions of echoes of, of Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty. Right. They I claim, think so. They always yeah. they talk about Edgar Allan Poe as being the first detective writer. There's I was going to say that very same thing. I feel so in sync. Yes. <laughs> but then I, I was reading some French guy who was earlier than him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in any of it, no, I think the, the original detective story. And it's hard to uh, imagine how popular this really was. One of the things I was reading, the Guinness Book of World Records says that Holmes is the most portrayed literary figure in history and TV and, and movies and so forth. So, and, you know, over the years, I mean, I'm like the stories about Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a Sherlock Holmes fan and was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars. And he wrote a little monograph saying how Sherlock Holmes was really an American, you know, kind of playing into that sort of make it up as you go along kind of series of things. Dad, could you define the Baker Street Irregulars for us? They're the street urchins of London who I think Raffles is their name of their kind of leader. And they provide all kinds of information to Holmes. They ferret things out. The rabbit warren of of London, they can uh, just give him information about what's going on around town. But there was there a real world society that people joined that was sort of like oh, a, of an appreciation. It was, it was like a fan the club in the, the book, yeah. and then that that society was created. And Conan Doyle is also given credit for sort of starting fandom, where you have these large fan organizations, and the Baker Street Irregulars is one of those hmm. for Sherlock Holmes. All right, we should mention Baker Street is the street where Sherlock Holmes's office is. It's a 22B Baker Street. I have been there. You know, there's a museum there now. It's had different things over it over time, but now it's a the Sherlock Holmes Museum, and it's really it's quite good. They got hmm. a lot of things that are interesting. I remember the guy explaining to us as we went in, and that. You know, there's lots of people that think Sherlock Holmes is real. And they, they know he's no longer alive, but they are. They do wonder where he's buried. You know, I'm not an and idiot. They, I don't <laughs> think he's alive. <laughs> okay, well, great. Uh, why don't we uh, transition here into my favorite segment, which is yes, Dan. What do you know about Professor Moriarty without having done well, any per- studying? Yeah, this is how I made it through high school, basically. Okay, well, I probably know a fair amount due to osmosis, just being in the same house as uh, Ronald Oster. And also I did read, he wasn't in it, but I did read The Hound of the Baskervilles in high school. That has a distinction of being a book that I have read. Maybe the most popular one. Yeah, I think it is the most popular because it's got like a spectral hound in it. 
<laughs> I mean, That's it's very right. accessible. Uh, or is it? But anyway, Professor Moriarty, yes, he was created, as we've discussed here, really as a way to kind of wrap up these stories, these very popular stories. I think they did appear in periodicals, right? They the did, yeah. yeah. 56 short stories. In- and I think and Conan Doyle was kind of done. He was just sort of done doing it, and he wanted to wrap up the story on his terms. And so he wrote this story, The Final Problem, which involves, I believe the way it's structured is Watson finds a letter He's tracing where Sherlock is, and he gets a letter here at Reichenbach Falls, and the letter tells him sort of what happened, or, you know, I guess from Sherlock Holmes's point of view, like, what is about to happen? But anyway, he encounters his nemesis, Professor Moriarty. What's his first name? James. James, James, thank you. All right. Yeah. uh, It's confusing because he has a brother whose name is also James. It's like a real George Foreman situation. Wait, wait, wait. Moriarty has a brother named James? Yes. yes. And it drove him mad. <laughs> well, let's, you can write the, something on that. Well, I kind of think of Moriarty as sort of the original retcon. So this is retroactive continuity. When you go back and you sort of change the story after you've already written it. And I think Conan Doyle sort of came up with this idea after he had written a bunch of these stories that there was one guy. There was one guy that was really the puppet master pulling the strings all along. All of the crime in London and beyond was being orchestrated by this guy, James Moriarty, the mere opposite of Sherlock Holmes. He's just as smart, if not smarter, but he is completely morally bankrupt and evil. He is a mathematician. I remember that. He'd written some published papers on like an asteroid. I think he had like studied some yes. asteroid. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is a weakness of Sherlock Holmes is I remember that he once uh, uh, kind of berated Watson for telling him that the earth revolved around the sun because he was like, that's not relevant to my work. I'm going to forget that. <laughs> that's, his mind is like a room and, and he can only have so much furniture in it. You know, right. it has to be useful furniture. Right, right exactly. Anyway, I digress. So uh, basically that's it. Yeah, he was created to sort of tie it all up to be this like very satisfying conclusion to everything. Holmes and Moriarty went over the edge of the falls and disappeared, presumed dead. And Watson, you know, was sort of left there to mourn the loss of his friend and partner. And then uh, like about 10 years or so later, Conan Doyle decided that he needed to make some money again and started and brought Holmes back, I believe, and probably Moriarty too. Yeah, it was a real shock. I mean, it was very, it was highly popular in about the 1890s when he decided to kill off Holmes. He, he, you know, Conan Doyle wrote a bunch of stuff and he didn't want to be typecast, I guess. And so he tried, he tried to get off it and he was pestered endlessly to kind of return. The first thing he actually did was Hound of the Baskervilles after the you know, the death of Holmes. And that was kind of like a prequel. Oh, so that's it. Wait, that's really interesting. So he wrote that afterwards. Yeah, he did, but it was a prequel. It was before the confrontation with Moriarty. So he sort of finessed a little bit the, you know, Holmes is dead (laughs) kind of thing. But The Hound of the Baskervilles was even more popular than everything before it. To give you an idea, I looked at the numbers on this. He originally did a study in Scarlet. He was paid 25 pounds. And when they got him back to start doing stories again, he was getting, I think, the equivalent of like a thousand pounds a story. So he went from nothing (laughs) up to a thousand, which is a lot of dough back then. He was one of the most highly compensated authors. Wow. It's amazing to walk away from that. He kind of Dave Chappelle'd it. Yeah, he did. They said he had a lot of integrity. And, And again, as you pointed out, you know, Moriarty, he was introduced for the very first time in that story where as people opened up their Strand magazine for Christmas, you know, I think it was 1893, 
There is a picture of Holmes and Moriarty fighting at the edge of the cliff, and the text out of the picture is the death of Sherlock Holmes. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> this can't happen. I can only imagine the letter-writing campaign that was like, this is not canon. We do not acknowledge this. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, Dan, because you look at, like, lots of – movie franchises or TV shows in the modern era that have run into this sort of exact problem, which is like, we got to kill off a character. We're going to make some big story leap. We're going to take a break from the franchise and then reboot it. And you look at the calculations that like studios go through on these things. And it's exactly this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Conan Doyle must have run up against some powerful forces that were like, are you crazy? We just, we're just printing money over here. (laughs) He had been writing the home stories for, I believe six years by the time the final problem comes out in 1893. Hmm. So I don't know how many of the 56 stories were within that span and how many of them are after. I think there was a total of four series he did. There were four novels. And then in the short stories, they were kind of batched up as like four different titles. And two of those were before the falls, and I think two of them were afterward. So, all right. Kind of well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Moriarty specifically, because that is the promise of this podcast. I don't know a lot about the character himself, so I'd be curious to hear about that. I, these are the I'm, I wrote this. This is a classic description: Napoleon of crime, Watson, the organizer of half that is evil and of nearly all that is undetected in this great city. He, you know, he's described. I like the description of like this spider in the center of a web, motionless, but he feels every quiver of the last thread. You know, and uh, what was? He's so prepared. This guy, I love it. A paper to be abstracted. We will say a house to be rifled, a man to be removed. The word is passed on to the professor. The matter is organized and carried out. The agent may be caught, and in that case, money is found for his bail or his defense. But the central power, which uses the agent, is never caught. Never so much as even suspected. So he's he's a worthy nemesis. Right. He he thrives in the shadows and he always works through intermediaries as a way of kind of protecting himself and his identity. And that's not an original Conan Doyle idea in a way, because Moriarty is based on a lot of different people. Two of them in particular, I thought were worth mentioning. One is a guy named Adam Worth, who was referred to as the Napoleon of crime, just as mm. Moriarty was. Is For his criminal behavior activities, I assume. <laughs> yeah, he was a, he was an American, and he eventually made his way to London as a way to escape the, the crimes he was committing in America. But he was drafted into the Civil War. He was injured, went to the hospital, and there through some sort of an error, was listed as dead. And since he was dead, he said, well, I don't have to serve in the Army anymore. I'm free. And he became what was called a bounty jumper, which mm. meant... What he would do was he would get a commission from someone who had been drafted into the Union Army and didn't want to go. They'd say, we'll pay you this exorbitant sum. You'll go in my place. So I've fulfilled my national duty. Then you'll go AWOL and that'll be the end of it. You'll collect your money. (laughs) I'll have done what I'm supposed to do. And everybody's happy. The Napoleon of crime. Um, Napoleon of crime. <laughs> well, That's where he gets his start. How, he what a genius. To, yeah. What a genius ruse. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, he would, uh, go ahead. We would do well, this so regularly. That's not his only crime. But he, he okay, goes but, to but he would do that. He would do that multiple times is what you're saying. Right. Over and over again because he's right. already technically, quote unquote, dead. Right. So he can keep doing it. So he um, he goes to England and he starts up a criminal network 
there and sort of does exactly what Moriarty does. He works through intermediaries so that people don't realize he's the brains behind all of these crimes and he famously stole a very expensive painting and kept it. And that element is used in the home story, The Valley yeah. of Fear. And in The Valley of Fear, which is another uh, it's written after the, the final problem, but takes place before, Moriarty is not present in the story, but his presence is felt in that he is trying to kill this character that Holmes is doing everything he can to protect. The reason being that that character is a Pinkerton detective who's on the run from some bad guys. And so Moriarty's after him. And one of the things Holmes points out in that story, he says, one of the ways I figured out that Moriarty was actually a criminal was that Moriarty I knew was in possession of this very, very fancy painting that a professor on a professor's salary could not afford. afford. Yeah, that's a classic way to root out corruption. Well, you know, yeah. I, that, that particular story, The Valley of Fear, is, is really one of my favorites. And it's one where Bertie Edwards is the Pinkerton detective. And half the story tells what's, you know, a flashback, really, where one of the main characters in the mystery was originally involved. And there's a point in the story when it all comes together, when you realize that, wait a minute, this flashback that he's telling me about, that character is the character that is central to the new mystery. And in fact, within the story, there's another hidden thing. There's three different characters who suddenly at one second all roll together. Anyway, Moriarty is involved in it because he ultimately kills the guy that Holmes is trying to. Oh, spoiler alert. Yeah, he succeeds in a very Moriarty fashion. His M.O. in terms of trying to kill people, at least we don't get a lot of them in these stories, but what it usually is is he tries to engineer some sort of a disaster that can be written off as an accident. So in the case of Valley of Fear, I believe it's a shipwreck. Uh, yeah. The guys on. Uh, I think he disappears in, off a ship. Yeah. Right. Right. And then in uh, the final problem, I think there's uh, somebody that gets run over by a carriage or almost gets run over. Well, in the uh, final problem, it's the falls. It's the Reichenbach Falls. It, Holmes is almost killed a couple. There's a couple of earlier attempts on it. One is right. with a runaway carriage. Then there's another one where some stones fall down. And and then he, just as his plans to snare Moriarty and his gang are coming to fruition, he goes to the continent to really evade these attempts to kill him and just until this is all done. And that's where he ultimately meets Moriarty. And I believe it's sort of a noble thing. He doesn't want to imperil Watson, so he kind of goes off without him, right, to go deal with this. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like staging his own death. When you were talking about Adam Worth there, I was thinking, well, that's kind of what Holmes was doing. Like he sets his thing up like he and Moriarty went over the falls together. And so he's he's officially dead. And so he's not being sought then by the accomplices ah, of Moriarty. Ah, I see. So is that later when he was brought back, was that the explanation that he had yes, done yeah, that? Yeah, he to- had to kind of be on the lam you know, essentially for a couple of years until they rooted out and caught all the members of the gang. Or I see. Point of dad lore. I just <laughs> want to say that uh, growing up, the backyard was referred to as the Valley of Fear, and dad went so far as to make a sign that he painted that said Valley of Fear. That was what I experienced growing yes. up. Yes. It's the Valley of Fear and Self-Realization Center was originally. <laughs> That's the full name. <laughs> Before we move on for this, just one other character I wanted to talk about who's uh, Jonathan Wilde. This is another person that Moriarty is based on. This is a guy who was known as the Thief Taker General. That was his nickname. And another English criminal mastermind. Now, his deal, this guy was active kind of in the early 1700s. 
and was one of these guys that was sort of like when we talked about Blackbeard being an out-of-work privateer, kind of the same thing happened on land, that these guys were involved in Queen Anne's War, the War of Spanish Succession, and once the war was over, they kind of had nothing to do, and so they took up crime. And this guy's interesting thing was he really became a mastermind because what he did was Again, kind of like Adam Worth, he'd work in the shadows and work through intermediaries and have them commit all sorts of thefts and burglaries. And then what he would do is he would either turn stolen goods into the police and claim rewards and look like a do-gooder, or he would actually turn in the criminals if they were either his rivals or people within his own gang that he wanted to burn because he could no longer trust them. So he was playing both sides ingeniously as he appeared to most people to be this really excellent crime fighter. And, of course, he knew where all the criminals were because he was hiring them. Mm -hmm. So really interesting guy. He's Uh, like an inverse green hornet who pretends to be a bad guy who's really a hero. This guy is pretending to be a hero. Pretty complicated MO, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, that's why he got caught. (laughs) (laughs) And and hung. When I think of these stories, I do think of them sometimes, and forgive me, as being somewhat dry, at least by today's standards. So when we're kind of unpacking the character of Moriarty, I feel like it's a little bit tough because the hero is so inscrutable in a way. Yeah, yeah so maybe that's much, not fair. You know, whenever you talk about these guys, I mean, particularly Holmes, a lot of the mannerisms are not necessarily in the books. I mean, there are things that people have added, particularly on the stage early on. Holmes was very, very popular in the United States, too. So there's a lot of stage productions. But William Gillette was an actor who introduced a lot of the physical things you associate with Holmes. The hat, the deerstalker hat, the cape, the Inverness cape, the Meerschaum pipe, and so forth. Those were all things that were added. Uh, this was on the, the st- on the stage? Yeah, on the stage, yeah. What, around then, what time was that, do you think? World War One time period. Yeah, Connie uh, died in 1930, by the way. Okay. Uh, Well, this is what I'm saying is that Holmes himself is sort of a hard character to unpack in some ways. You have to sort of piece together what you get from these stories. And there's not necessarily a ton about his personality other than, again, just sort of what you can glean. So Moriarty to me is even more difficult, I think, to sort of figure out in terms of motives. and. Well, there's also just a lot less just actual Moriarty content. You've got one scene with him in The Final Problem where he actually appears and speaks to Holmes. They have their kind of like Batman and the Joker face-off moment. And then he's talked about a lot in the beginning and the end of the Valley of Fear. And then he is referenced in a handful of other stories. Just but that's minor kind of references, all, yeah. Yeah, that, that's all the Moriarty content you get. So that's a lot of what makes up that character does come from later adaptations. Well, maybe they do. They, we they, they provide a backstory to all that. But, you know, physically he's always described as – or described in the – Holmes worked as uh, – Tall, thin, sort of cadaverous, sunken eyes, kind of bony uh, forehead. And I I always like this one too. His head leaning forward and oscillating left to right in a reptilian fashion. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, we just put out the Mr. Burns episode, so that's the image I have right now. Mr. Burns would be a pretty good uh, uh, start there. So maybe we should, as we continue to unpack this character, maybe we should move into some of these adaptations. Maybe that will give us a little more to work with. What are some of the traits that people seem to have accepted to belong to this character? So, I, Dad, I know that you in particular have enjoyed the uh, the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, yeah, that's the classic presentation of Holmes, I think. But focusing on Moriarty, yeah. uh, you know, people have done all kinds of 
whole backstories about him uh, and how he's a, you know, a product of Holmes's imagination that he sometimes, or I remember, I can't remember the, which uh, particular version did this, but it said that he was really Holmes's math teacher back from early school days. And he was just projecting all of this stuff kind of forward. As you know, he's Moriarty. Was oh, wait, wait, a woman. can I stop you for a second? So in that, and in, in this is all non-Conan Doyle, right? This is other people. Right, right. This is So in that version, is he still a villain or is it just Holmes inventing this <laughs> character? Well, Holmes kind of inventing the character, you know. <laughs> uh, to, is, is Holmes like, does he have a dark half? Is he going out? Yeah, well, they, you know, you can play it in a lot of different ways. And I think <laughs> I, get, I think that was. In that story, it was one of those? Yeah. Okay, interesting. All right. Hmm. It's also but that's very, not like, a Basil Rathbone. I would imagine. No, no, no. no, we're, no we're, we're, we've yeah, shifted no, no. gears. Yeah. Donnie, I, you're like a child who wanders into the <laughs> Yeah, there, there were, no, that, that was, I mean, there's so many. Robert Downey Jr. has played Sherlock Holmes recently. Yeah. Right. So, again, I'm wondering, are there, well, part of, I think, the appeal of Moriarty, then, is that he's sort of a villain free space. I mean, you can take sort of this impossible idea, if I may, that the, the genius villain is a fictional concept in a lot. It's very hard. If you're that smart, you generally get away with it without having to be, like, known as a criminal, Right. It's pretty rare that you can do that. So he's sort of an impossible idea. So to make that work, I think, is a fun challenge for a writer. And that's my question is, like, have there been sort of common traits that we've seen in incarnations with him? Or is it all just kind of all over the map? He's like, no, in this version, he's fictitious. And in this version, he's from space. I don't know. What's the deal? I don't know, Doug. You're, you're, what would you say? Well, here's here's kind of the problem with it is, as you mentioned earlier, Holmes has been portrayed more than any other literary character between film and TV and video games and everything. <laughs> so that means that's a lot of Holmeses and that's a lot of Moriarty's. So <laughs> it's very hard. To We're kind of lousy with Moriarty's. <laughs> um, the through line is, I think, just, you know, again, negative image of Sherlock Holmes, right? He is sure. just as smart. And it's fun because you're going to say, well, we can do pretty much anything we want with this character as long as we're not directly adapting the final problem. We can have this character do anything we want. So he's as good as the writer's scheme. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have a few particular adaptations that okay. um, Some notable I, I would like appearances. to talk about, but I think, you know, if there's any that you guys want to focus well, on. Well, Dad, I'm do you to... remember any particular ones that you've read or seen on the screen that struck you? Otherwise, we can go well, with Well, just uh, we had talked earlier about the in elementary, you know, uh, Moriarty was a woman. You know, uh, yes, this is the television series. Uh, you know. And yeah, so was Natalie Watson Dormer from Game of Thrones. Yes. Oh, is. really? Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. A gender flipped Moriarty. So Fair that's... enough. But I think she's as evil as Moriarty, I think. I, my understanding is she's basically inter- intellectually as evil, but they're also adding the fact that she can use her feminine wiles as another <laughs> added bonus. I guess. Yes. She's um, not so gaunt and uh, reptilian. A spider in the middle of the web <laughs> with feminine wiles. So, so yes, work all right. that together. Well, people feel very free to play around with this stuff. There's one coming out. There's actually, I don't even think you know this, Dad. There's a movie coming out in September on Netflix. It's called Enola Holmes. And this is a story that imagines that, I think it's the girl from Stranger Things, Eleven. She's playing 
a spunky teenage sister of Sherlock Holmes. So people feel very free. <laughs> his sister. To, yeah. yeah, his sister. You never heard about her, but she was always in the background. And uh, I think Henry Cavill, who played Superman, appropriately enough, is playing Sherlock Holmes. So that'll be an interesting one. Uh, and I would be shocked if Moriarty didn't make an appearance because they always find a way to stick him in. Maybe he's got a <laughs> Well, he's the sister. only, like, you know, Holmes doesn't have much of a rogues gallery. So if you're going to, like, put Holmes up against somebody... It's kind of interesting that in the Guy Ritchie movies, they saved Moriarty for the second one. They didn't. Uh, they always do that, though, in the superhero stuff. It's always like, oh, I'm fighting, you know, the condiment king. But the next movie, I'm fighting yeah. Joker. I think that's right about the Holmes villains. You know, by and large, there's no kind of continuing sort of characters from one short story or one kind of thing to the next. Moriarty maybe is the exception, but it's with these sort of references. Uh this have. is this is this classic mystery thing where it's really more about the puzzle than it is about delving into colorful characters. I mean, there's some, but it seems like it's more about the puzzle. But anyway, Doug, yeah, you were going to give us some uh, oh. incarnations. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot to them. I wanted to pick some particularly unusual kind of fun ones. So <laughs> I went back and I watched. There are two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation where Moriarty mm. makes an appearance. Ah. Yeah, okay. Dad, I don't know that you're familiar with this. Have we talked about this ever? Uh, his, no, yeah, it was no, on Star I, Trek. I, I, I okay. didn't even know that this was happening. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is, so, uh, this is one of uh, Star Trek's many uh, holodeck episodes. <laughs> right. And so the holodeck is an entertainment the video game of the future that they have on the Enterprise to keep the crew entertained during their downtime. And it's sort of a virtual reality space where they can have the computer generate any space they want to move through. And it feels like physical matter. And so Commander Data is enraptured with Sherlock Holmes. So he has the computer generate Sherlock Holmes simulations for him to enjoy. And the crew points out to him and says, you know, the reason you're kind of not digging this so much is You've already read the Sherlock Holmes story, so you you know the solution to the mystery. Right. He's so just sort fun. of going through the motions every time. Right. So he says, okay, then, computer, I want you to generate a Sherlock Holmes story that's new that I haven't read before. Oh. And so, so it'll be a challenge. So the computer generates a Moriarty, but the Moriarty it generates ends up becoming self-aware that he is in this computer simulation and is doing everything he can to try and get out of the holodeck and mess with the Enterprise. And eventually the crew manages to kind of come to an understanding with him as a sentient being of some kind that they have to reckon with that has like actual rights. Right. They can't just like delete him because now he's (laughs) self-aware. Right. So what they do is they say, well, look, we're going to put you and the program on ice until we figure out how to actually take matter from the holodeck and bring it out into the real world, which in theory, anything that's like in the holodeck, if it just if you like take a book off the shelf and toss it at the door, it poofs out of existence. So they said, well, we can't have you do that, Moriarty. That wouldn't be fair. So we'll put you on ice. And then in the next episode that they bring him back several seasons later, the holodeck starts glitching and Moriarty comes back and he says, what the hell? You've had me on ice for three years. Doug is paraphrasing, I, of course. You thought I was just in a pause mode, but I actually experienced those three years <laughs> in like this empty, hellish void of non-existence. And the Enterprise crew is like, oh, God, we didn't realize we did that to you. Um, and again, he starts going through machinations of trying to get out. Uh, and eventually what they do is they create. Spoiler a alert. Movie. Spoiler alert. Spoiler you can alert. go see these on the, Netflix. The, 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 Yeah, the episode is called Ship in a Bottle. They create a holodeck inside the holodeck and put him and trick him into going into that. 
And then they kind of close that behind him and they keep that running as a simulation. Right. So he believes that he has left the holodeck. He believes he is now out in the world. They give him like a shuttlecraft and he goes off and he's like, I can go explore the universe or whatever. But he's still on the holodeck because they just can't do it. They can't figure out a way to make holograms out in the world. So he believes he's free. But yeah, they can't do it. So who who played uh, Moriarty? I I don't. I did not. Some some lucky character actor in the early 90s. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have He's that. Still getting thirty nine cents um, mailed to him every time somebody streams it. So Doug, um, so your first your first notable appearance is Star Trek: The Next Generation. Okay. Yeah, and the other one is it's really non-canon. I want I'm gonna backdoor in a Disney villain mm. from the Great Mouse Detective. Ah, the Great mm. Mouse Detective Ratigan. Yes, Ratigan. Yeah, wow, I've forgotten about that one. So this is a version, right, the Disney version where Basil of Baker Street is the detective. He is a mouse that lives in an office underneath Sherlock Holmes' office and has his own adventures with uh, Dr. Dawson. Um, I love that trope, by the way, that everyone has a mouse doppelganger. That is living your life, but just with mousy things. And uh, yeah, but Professor Radigan's plan, such as it is, he kidnaps a toy maker to create a duplicate of the Mouse Queen and kidnap the real queen and thereby rule Mouse England, which is ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun. (laughs) A lot of just adding mouse to things. And he's played by Vincent Price, which is fantastic. Nice. And uh, and he's got two songs in the movie. Mm. So Radigan sings. Okay. That's pretty good. uh, why don't we look at some of the more mainstream adaptations, I no! guess? No! <laughs> <laughs> no, if you detect a hint of judgment, Doug, it's entirely no, intended. No, we should, no, no definitely. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to cover, for sure. God, there are a lot. I mean, he definitely showed up in the second Guy Ritchie movie. You know, what I love, Dad, about your relationship with these stories is you're not judgmental. You appreciate all of them, I think. Well, if you like Holmes, yeah, you, you want to see it different versions. I'm not offended when somebody, you know, goes beyond the canon and comes up with these ideas. I think most of them are fun. I mean, uh, yeah, well, you are definitely not of this time because that's not what it means to be a fan these days. Uh, it means to be like, you didn't do it the way I wanted it and I'm canceling you. But God, what was the name of the actor, uh, Doug, who played Jared him? Harris, Jared oh. Harris. Yes. And I'll tell you what struck me about that, which you know, it's funny, that movie, I thought it started off kind of slow and weird, but then it got going and I ended up liking it more than the original once it kind of found its traction. But there's a really cool thing they did at the end there where they do the going over the side thing. And there's just this really cool scene because he's been so calculating and so reserved the entire movie to Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of idiosyncratic Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, once they go over the side... Holmes is like shown as having this sort of meditative calm as they're sort of falling to their death. And Moriarty is just screaming in his face. It's, just, it's, just utter, it's all fallen away. All the pretense has fallen away. And he's just rageful as they go over. And I thought that was a really kind of cool visual because uh, mm. he'd been getting the best of Holmes the entire movie. And then this was the final. He had been beaten. It was just like, ah. It was, it was great. So I, I, Jared Harris did a fantastic job, as he always mm-hmm. does. Yeah, he plays a good creepo, for sure. Go watch Fringe if you haven't seen that. He plays mm-hmm. an exceptional villain there. And um, then, of course, there's the Stephen Moffat series, which was... And I don't know if you ever watched those, Dad. This is, of course, with um, uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. No, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch, that's right. Doctor Strange. Uh, and who, uh, who, who plays Watson, the guy? From, Martin... Uh, Martin Freeman played? Yeah. I was say, Martin Mull, who would have been a great Watson. Mm. No, Martin Freeman. So, uh, did you ever watch those, Dad? Uh, I've seen a couple of them. Yeah, your mom's a fan of them. Okay, um, yeah. What do you make of those? Oh, I, I didn't get too far into it. I, I mean, I... I uh, 
there's so many. I, I was trying to think of some other ones recently that, oh, Young Sherlock Holmes. Did you see that one? Oh, well, that's the classic one. I think George Lucas had some producerial involvement in that one. And I'm pretty sure Moriarty probably shows up at the end and is like, yeah, I'll be seeing you. Well, the, <laughs> but this is young. Moriarty is a, because is they, they it starts out, they go to school. Anyway, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. But, but the Stephen Moffat ones, so Moriarty came onto that scene. And do you know the name of the actor, Doug, offhand? Uh, Adam's... Uh, shoot, that's driving me nuts. Uh, I'll, I'll find it. He's having a moment now on Fleabag, but he was a different take. I watched a little bit of that. Did you watch those, Doug? I did. I've watched some of them. I have watched some of the ones with... I think I stopped in season three, so they did the bit with the, the fall where they both go over the side. In this case, it's a building, and they right. go over the side. And then I watched the episode where they brought Sherlock Holmes back. After he okay. was supposedly dead, I think yeah, I it's get probably like you know that. Reichenbach Fish Cannery or whatever you know <laughs> the, name of the building that they were on top of. But uh, tell me about his portrayal in that. So he's interest. It's Andrew Scott. I'm sorry. Now I got it. He's very slick, and the personality that he does is he's almost a cartoon. Like he, he's very big. He, yeah, it's a super mm. big performance, and he kind of pushes it right up to the edge, and he never lets you in on like. Is he being really hammy because he's being really hammy or is Moriarty putting on kind of this right. persona for effect? Mm. Um, it's not really clear because he does every once in a while, like he'll kind of throttle back on that huh. and be very mm. sinister. And he kind of just keeps ratcheting that up. Did it strike you as a choice, yeah. as a character choice? Is it, is it comical when he ratchets it up? Or well, because I remember watching it with Jen a little bit, and we were like, this feels like theater acting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very big. But I like your interpretation that maybe it's Moriarty kind of putting on That's his uh, yeah, it's, Yeah, and this is obviously a much younger Moriarty. This person is, I don't know how old he actually is in real life, but he appears to be roughly the same age as Benedict Cumberbatch. So we're not getting like the old Mr. Burns looking Moriarty. <laughs> he's like young and he's like tries to be like cool in some ways where he's like, there's like a famous scene where he enters and he like steps off of a helicopter and he's like, look how badass I am. You know, he interesting. He's so really they make him showy. Yeah, really kind of vulnerable and insecure. There's some of that. There's definitely some of that, you know, maybe this is like he's putting on a show to hide some insecurities. But I think he also, I mean, you can tell he is very clever. And a lot of it is born out of this extreme confidence in his own intellect that he's like, I can do this and I can get away with it because I've already beaten you and you don't even know it yet. And you don't know why. And it'll be too late for you when you figure it out. So he's a very showy and sort of taunting kind of Moriarty. Extremely. And there's a little of that in the original Final Problem in their confrontation because Moriarty says a lot of things to Holmes about my organization is so big and so powerful. You don't even realize what you're up against. You don't know. And that is very much in the DNA of the Andrew Scott, Stephen Moffat version of the character. You know, it's interesting. The influence of these story elements can really be felt in James Bond villains. Yes, I think so. I think Blofeld is Moriarty. I mean, it's the same like template for Ernst right. Blofeld. But just that egocentrism, that megalomania, the desire to sort of take a moment to savor your victory. Yeah, and, by, yeah. and by the way, and the James Bond thing, they never really kind of go in the background of Blofeld very much, do they? I mean, do they? Well, he's definitely they, a future guest, not guest, a future son. <laughs> well, okay, maybe he's coming yeah. up. Maybe we'll, find well we would definitely like to dig into him a little bit on the show. 
Yeah, we've kicked around the idea of doing Blofeld for sure, because, you know, James Bond's got a lot of villains and he's the big one. So there's a trope right now on Twitter, which is like the movie villain, then the actual villain. I think in James Bond, it's like the movie villain is Blofeld, the actual villain, syphilis. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, we should bring Blofeld on at some point. But so that's yeah, that's the Andrew Scott version of the character. Like he's very they, they definitely do a lot with he's just as smart as Holmes. And I think maybe some of the the flashy personality is meant to mirror or be kind of an opposite to the Benedict Cumberbatch Holmes, who is, I think so, you know, yeah. kind of like reserved on the almost bordering on like a personality disorder that he's so like in his head. Well, this yeah. is interesting about Sherlock Holmes as a character because it's not hard to look at him as somebody who might be, you know, I guess we say these days on the spectrum, right? He seems to be sort of socially withdrawn a little bit, but he's, you know, he's able to do things that no one can do. And it's funny that Data has a connection to the character because I was reading something very yeah, recently that like he was sort of an icon for kids growing up who didn't really even kind of know how to describe their experience. But they saw this guy Data who had this yearning to sort of fit in a little bit more and and and, and so it's mm. Sherlock Holmes kind of has he doesn't have that yearning but he sort of has that quality and I wonder if Conan Doyle was sort of mapping him onto people that he might have known that might have had that well they even in the Stephen mm. Moffat show they even show Benedict Cumberbatch when they try to dramatize his mental deductions as like words flashing on the screen right. in kind of stylistic ways and that's kind of a trope that's sometimes used in like think of like a beautiful mind. That, that that's what I was thinking of earlier when you, you were know, saying that. Yeah. In that movie, Russell Crowe is a real world mathematician yeah. who had, I think, schizophrenia or some severe mental problem, and they show how his mind works visually, kind of the same way with different mathematical formulas and stuff on screen. And if so I'm correct, wasn't the deal one of the deals with Sherlock Holmes is that he would have like these periods of like extreme productivity, but then he needed like some downtime. Was that well? Yeah, that, that's the seven percent solution. I mean, you know, it was the cocaine. Uh, <laughs> well, that's some serious downtime. <laughs> you know, that's how he dealt with it. Now, seven percent solution is that Conan Doyle? No, that was another one of these modern ones. I think Nicholas Mayer did it. It was uh, another home story. Right. And it picks up where they left off. But uh, the idea that Holmes would go through these periods of boredom where he wasn't working, he didn't have a problem to solve, and his mind just, you know, he, he didn't. I think we all can relate to that right now. <laughs> Which is interesting because, you know, he does eventually retire because Conan Doyle wrote a story called The Last Bow, or Bow, yeah. I'm sorry. In which you've only read uh, it, you've never heard Holmes, it said out loud. Holmes retires and become. I think he takes up beekeeping. Yes. <laughs> oh, you know. By the way, I know we get funny. Sometimes we do a character, and the draw of the hero is so strong that we keep going back to the hero. This feels like one of those instances a little bit. But I did see the Ian McKellen movie. Yes, where he is a beekeeper. He's a he beekeeper. Is. Yeah, and that one is another one that's taking some severe liberties. I haven't known too many beekeepers. Homes. You know, uh, or even people <laughs> who were beekeepers. But you know, I think Sir Edmund Hillary was a beekeeper. So here you go. <laughs> They're all around us, Dad. They just don't really <laughs> brag about it. Okay, Doug, did you have any more incarnations that you no, wanted to No, I mention? think we've kind of covered some of the big ones. Uh, would you want to talk about the horrible movie with Will Ferrell that just bombed? Oh, I yeah. It was a big one. <laughs> Holmes Boy, and Watson, really, right? They, they so this is, this is the movie that posits, uh, what if Holmes and Watson were uh, just really, really stupid? <laughs> I think. There is with no explanation. Played by... Ray Fiennes is Moriarty in that movie, but I've oh not boy. seen it. Oh, boy. Oh, bro. Uh, <laughs> let, let me recommend another one, though. This I know where you're comedy. going. I know where you're going, and do is it, it without a clue. Okay. Yes, yeah, it is. Don't take it away. Don't. Yeah, without a clue. A family favorite. I still have yeah. to see it. 
Well, well you haven't you know, seen it. Oh, no. And you won't be surprised that I believe this is the second time Without a Clue has been brought up on this podcast. So this is the one that has, this is... Michael Caine. Um, Michael Caine is, is playing Sherlock Holmes. Well, Dad, you go ahead and explain it. Well, no, no, who, who's, who's, I'm trying to remember. Well, ben Kingsley is Watson. Ben Kingsley is Watson. And Dad, regale us with well, the Well, the premise of, of the story is that it's Watson who's the great detective, but he's a doctor and he, he doesn't want to get his name too much involved with things. So he hires this actor, Reginald Kincaid, played by Michael Caine, to be Holmes and to lead the, like he's doing the investigations and everything else. But behind the scenes, it's all Watson. Because Watson doesn't have the people skills or whatever, the dramatic flair. And it might, it's very funny. I mean, Michael Caine is excellent as the Reginald Kincaid, the actor. And now, I believe Moriarty Holmes. is portrayed by real-life villain Jeffrey Jones <laughs> in that film, <laughs> if, I, if I recall correctly. I uh, but he's, he's in it. You're right. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, I think, you know, is he not, uh, is he not more, I'll look it up. Maybe he's, Lis, uh, is it Lestrade? He's, he's Lestrade. Uh, I think he's is Lestrade. Is he Lestrade? He's, oh, he's okay. one of the, the clueless uh, uh, Scotland Yard. Guys. Now, side note, Lestrade, of course, is uh, abolish the police. He's a cop. <laughs> A-cab, Lestrade. All constables are bad, right? <laughs> All constables well, you know, are I bad. I think, Sean, Wait, you what? were talking, you know, that this series introduced so many kind of standard things. And I think one of them, is the view of Scotland Yard, and you can put the FBI there or whatever, but it's this notion that the central police thing are incompetent. They, they, they want to claim credit, but they're not very good. And you see well, that's that my in question. a lot of these cop is- shows where the FBI guys that come in are arrogant and they're kind right. of doing all of this stuff, and it's the local cops that are really solving the problem well my favorite version of that is in die hard when the fbi shows up and they're like ah, we can lose some hostages <laughs> they don't care but lestrade in the stories is he as bumbling in the stories as he because he later on he gets portrayed often as just a boob is that in the stories or is that something that people decided to run with uh, holmes describes him and somebody else as the best of a bad lot so i don't <laughs> think he sees him as real not particularly effective but not a total bumbler Damning he's with just, he's just like one step behind Holmes. You know, he's just yeah. not, he can't keep yeah. up. Okay, so Holmes doesn't get canceled in 2020, but Lestrade definitely does. Hey, all right, so here's the actor who played him in Without a Clue. This is kind of cool. He's another villain who I'm sure we'll talk about one day. Uh, he played Belloc in Raiders of the Lost oh. Ark. Paul Freeman played him, which I did not know he, until I looked it up just now. He played Moriarty. He played Moriarty in Without a Clue. And we don't need to spend a ton of time on it because I don't really remember Moriarty from it. I believe I remember the joke, and I think I've already brought it up in this podcast, <laughs> unless I cut it out because I was like, that's too lame. But uh, what had happened was, you know, of course, Watson gets kidnapped, so Reginald Kincaid, a.k.a. Sherlock Holmes, has to find him, and he has, does not have any of the skills. So he's there trying to figure out what happened to Watson and, you know, montage of him trying to you know, write on a chalkboard and figure it out. Using the, the tools of Sherlock Holmes, he's going <laughs> to decipher it. Right. He's played him long enough. He letters. can figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And then finally he's like, I've got it. You know, the name of the bad guy who has him, his real name is Artie Mori. <laughs> you know, Artie Mori. He, he takes Mori yeah, Artie, Artie and he's, he's, yeah, he's he rearranging. It, you know. yeah. But anyway, uh, I don't really remember him in that. But if it was Belloc, I mean, I'm sure he was very sinister. Okay, great. So let's yeah. move on into the catch-all then of the moral alignment of Moriarty. And this might be a little bit difficult because we have so many possible Moriartys to play with here. Now, Dad, 
The moral alignment, as I alluded to in our earlier phone call, this is from Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game from the 1980s, still popular today that, you know, at the time was thought to encourage Satan worship. Anyway, (laughs) which we, of course, endorse here on the podcast. There's a moral alignment, and it's got uh, nine squares. You've got good is one column. You've got neutral is, is three, you know, and then on the other side, you have evil. Of course, we only care here about the evil part. And you've got lawful evil, which is they work within the system to do their evil works. Uh, Darth Vader is a good example. Adolf Hitler is a good example. Then you got neutral evil. This is somebody who just doesn't care about the ramifications of what they do. A lot of, uh, of real-world criminals are like this, like Al Capone and stuff like that. People get hurt. Doesn't matter. I just get what I want. That's fine by me. And then you got the chaotic evil people. And these are the people where evil is the reward. They actually enjoy causing the suffering and destroying the natural order of things and just tearing it all down. We always like to bring up the Joker on this podcast as a good example of that. So you've got lawful, neutral, and chaotic evil. Gentlemen, discuss. Uh, from your description, I was kind of going to neutral, but I'm kind of seems neutral. I, I don't know if he's ever really tortured anybody or done anything like that. He does, you know. Again, we don't get very much uh, mm-hmm. Moriarty content from Conan Doyle. That version of the character, I think he's got to be either neutral or chaotic because he does. Mm-hmm. There is some sense that he's like proud of his evil doing. You know that he's one upped Holmes. His joy that you'll never catch me, you know. Ha, ha, ha. That's, that's like true. That. that is the softest version of chaotic evil, right? Where it's not like right. I enjoy causing you pain, but I I do kind of like that I'm evil. You know, I twirl my mustache. <laughs> I guess I was struck by the fact that he's depicted as being in control of such a massive organization throughout the city. Or maybe it's not one organization, but all these people that he has connections to and that he can control. And that... That doesn't strike me as somebody who's trying to tear everything down. I mean, he's kind of embedded himself in the whole society and he's sucking it dry, you know. Well, what's interesting is because he's British, he has to get at least one point in the lawful category because it's the most orderly <laughs> version of committing What's lawful crime. again? What is it? Lawful is like the system, you know what I mean? It would be like... Um, the system in, itself uh, is evil. Uh, yeah, see. yeah. Les Miserables, who's the guy? Javert. Javert would be lawful evil, you know, or evil. I mean, that's, I know, that's a big, that's a lot to throw at, at a more complex character than that. But he's working within the system, you know what I mean? He's probably lawful neutral if I'm being, like, super, you know, fair. But anyway, that's the lawful part. I, I think you guys are right. I think he's neutral with just, like, like a dusting of chaotic. <laughs> it's a saw of chaotic. The more we do this, the more we sort of hedge. It's really funny. It's like, but well, you can't mm-hmm. just classify somebody so easily. All right, should we get into the fan casting? Sure. So he's been played a lot of times by a lot of different actors, but if we were to do our version, who would play Moriarty? Well, I was thinking uh, John Malkovich uh, always... Is he like a Weird Al Yankovic? John Malkovich? (laughs) John Malkovich. John Malkovich. (laughs) Yes, That's what I'm thinking of. And and the uh, other guy that kind of came, but he's not... I'm thinking of Malkovich because he's kind of tall and gaunt and thin and some things. Sure, I think he'd be fantastic. But for kind of the evil just shining from him, I think the Hannibal Lecter character played by Anthony Hopkins. I think Anthony Hopkins would be a fantastic choice as well. He'd that was great. the one I had in mind. Yeah. Oh, really? Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Hollywood, if you are listening, 
give me a job. And then cast Anthony Hopkins as <laughs> Professor Moriarty. It's funny, Malkovich has come up before on this podcast. I think it was when we were talking about Q. Yeah. Was it Aaron's pick for Q? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know if I've uh, uh, been able to give this uh, a ton of thought. I think I'm sort of embarrassing myself by not having a great answer. But you guys both gave really good ones. I like uh, I like Anthony Hopkins as a choice. That's pretty cool. The other one I thought of was, uh, uh, what's his name? Tony Goldwyn, I think is his name. Mm. Tony uh, Goldwyn? You mean the bad guy from Ghost? Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Uh, you know, he plays a bad guy in that, but he I, he has kind of this, I watched him in Scandal where he plays the president and he's a very different character there. And he just showed up in something I was watching recently. Um, oh, it was Lovecraft Country. He's, he's a He did show in up that. in Lovecraft Country. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And it, it's interesting to watch him kind of play sort of a, a scary evil guy again. And based on his performance in that, he's kind of tall and lean. And, and, and if you just kind of aged him up a little bit, I, I like him. Okay. Uh, for the role. Mm. Cool. So Doug is picking someone that he just saw recently in a thing <laughs> because he was put on the spot. That's what I do. Uh, uh, what did I see uh, left? Uh, Gene Hackman. Yeah. Gene Hackman Mitch would be McConnell. great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not smart. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, by the way, we all know that I like to bring up Donald Trump on this podcast, but because we're talking about a criminal genius, it has not come <laughs> up. I have not been able to find any connection yeah. <laughs> because in the real world, stupidity reigns supreme. There. There it is. Uh, but it's true that Moriarty is a criminal... Very very stable genius. Yes. yes, he is a stable genius, in, indeed. Uh, the apprentice of crime. Okay, great. I am deeming the winner of that to be Anthony Hopkins. I think he'd be a fantastic choice. Well, one last comment on the Moriarty thing. People pointed out that when Conan Doyle offed Holmes, you know, there was no body, so he could bring him back, which is what he did by giving an answer to the fall. Well, the same thing would be true of, uh, of uh, Moriarty. You know, there's no body there either. Holmes says he went over the falls, but who knows? Did Conan Doyle never bring him back in a sequel? It was always a prequel? No. no. Ah, interesting. So he really, wow. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. I just assumed that he brought him back as well. Nope. nope. Fair enough. All right. Uh-huh. And now uh, moving on to what is the stupidest and most embarrassing part of our podcast, especially when we have a guest. This is the title fight pitting the current villain with last week's villain. And I always forget. I love it because I'm usually editing one from several weeks ago. So who is Moriarty going up against this time, Doug? Charles Manson. Charles, Charles Manson. Manson. Real life villain, Charles Manson. <laughs> this is the title fight with our 8-bit sound cue here. Oh, that's not a fair and, fight. And Dad, you do remember that Mike Tyson's punch-out got a lot of play in our home at some point. That's what this is from. Okay. So, I don't know that it's actually <laughs> quite as cut and dry as we think. <laughs> okay, um, good. If you want, I'll I'll uh, take the case for Charles Manson. If you guys want to take the case for the <laughs> sure, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I, you know what? I have two lawyers here. This is so exciting. That's so, true. All right, Doug, you're representing Charles Manson. Representing Dad, Charles Manson. You have two very problematic clients. Uh, Dad's got <laughs> Professor Moriarty. <laughs> all right, Doug, how do you think it would play out? Well, first of all, I really don't want to be Charles Manson's lawyer. I don't know if we touched on the podcast, but he killed one of his lawyers. Oh, wow. So, and, and yeah. That's right. We did not yep. touch on that. No. This is not a super educational podcast. <laughs> Never envisioned that way. Uh, okay, so uh, here's my pick for why Charles Manson is actually has some edge against Moriarty. Moriarty is calculating. He is a thinker. He is you know, very much all about plotting and planning. And Charles Manson is wildly unpredictable. So I think that the one weakness that he can exploit is that Moriarty would have an extremely difficult time trying to to second guess him because <laughs> he would just have like you know something. Well, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'll buy the unpredictability point. I mean, uh, 
It still it gives them an edge, and I would say, you know, you take Victorian England and you run it up against, like, hippy-dippy... Flower sandals, power. Or, I mean, those things couldn't be more different, so I could definitely see some... Oh, yeah, mismatch here. I don't know. I guess I'm just counting on the fact that Moriarty is such a large organization of things and people, and he'd just be... He doesn't personally do these things. He just finds the tools and has an infinite number of them to bring it about, when I think of Manson's crew, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so to speak, they, they'd be a they like to think of themselves rest. as a family. Yeah, Squeaky Fromm, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and the rest. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm struck by the overall organizational. Yeah, I, I think there would be a proximity problem there. Would it was a one-on-one one battle, enough. you know. A la the Reichenbach Falls, you know, where Manson versus Moriarty, you guys are. <laughs> Manson cage skips fight. away with Moriarty on his head. I mean, hat. who knows? <laughs> I, I, maybe I'd give it to Manson. Manson's Sorry? real short. Manson's only like five foot nothing. And Moriarty's uh, is. pretty big. He's like, he's a yeah. tall, yeah, lanky but, guy. But, but, yeah. yeah, okay, fair enough. I would say what I think is interesting about these two is that they both have an organization of sorts. They're both, yes. you know, a kind of a mastermind. So you kind of wonder if they would ever really be in the same room with each other. That they kind of have other people go out and do their shit. Well, that's right. That's what Moriarty did. Although you know, he did, he did go after Holmes personally. I mean, he, he. That's true. I gotta say, I feel like Moriarty probably would work this one out because Manson, you know, at the end of the day, was sort of crazy <laughs> and sloppy. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't always like working in his own self. Wasn't he always listening Moriarty to real songs? Wasn't it? Oh, yeah. No. Hey, Dad, we played some of his songs, and they're not bad. (laughs) That's the weird part. I'm going to give this one to Moriarty. Fair enough. Well, that was, you put in a real fight for for Manson, though. Thank you. My my dream as an attorney to to defend someone of that stature. Yes, it was a settlement, but I think that uh, Moriarty (laughs) came out on top. All right. I guess that's really, you know, all the stuff that we usually hit. I do want to add one other element into this before we stop, even though it's going to mean more episode for me to edit later. There have been a number of Sherlock Holmesian experiences, I guess I'll describe them as, that my dad and I have had over the years. The most recent one we did was like this letter writing thing you can sign up for. It's like dearholmes.com, and I got it for him as a Christmas present, where you get these letters sent to you as if they're writing to Sherlock Holmes. And over the course of the month, you sort of, you have to, figure it out you know you have to solve the mystery and then at the end you get a letter from Sherlock Holmes which of course is like well this is what happened and you know how close did you get to solving it so that's a little bit of a fun thing if you it is the device is that Holmes is engaged in something you know on the continent or something else and Watson is kind of filling in for him right uh, and so he's kind of giving him details about things and that's a fun thing that's dearholmes.com you can check that out we've also enjoyed this one's been around for decades it's kind of a board game it's called Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective And this one's another interesting one where you you and a bunch of friends can kind of sit in a room and you decide together where to go. And then you have a book of like addresses and you turn to that page that's like, oh, you know what? Somebody mentioned a butcher or something. Let's go over here. And you turn to the appropriate page and you actually read an excerpt where the butcher kind of tells you what he knows and you work it out that way. That's another. I don't even know if it's in print right now, but that's a really fun one. It is. It is. Yeah, where you get to kind of work together. And I think you sort of pass the hat around or whatever. Who who gets to decide in a given moment what your next move You try to do it in the least number of moves possible. You try to figure that out. And uh, those are a couple. There's obviously a lot of video games involving Sherlock Holmes. And he has actually gone up against Jack the Ripper, I believe, in a video game. And also, if not Cthulhu directly, another mm-hmm. podcast but evil favorite, he's gone up against some Lovecraftian stuff. 
Ed Moriarty was in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as I recall. The movie. The movie. You're, you're talking about the Basil <laughs> Rathbone. I, I love the ones where he's Sherlock Holmes against the Nazis, you know. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Uh, well, there's some, more, yeah, World War Two, you know, uh, things where it's whoa, whoa, Basil Rathbone. Let's pull the podcast over. Holmes. Wait, wait, wait. So this is Sherlock, a very aged Sherlock Holmes against the well, Nazis? Well, they kind of skip over that part. Well, Dad, explain this. What happens? <laughs> Well, he's fighting, you know, the Nazis. I mean, the the Germans, uh, you know, it's it's a World War II kind of setting. He's okay, so this is, and these were, what were these, Masterpiece Theater? Who produced these? Oh, no, these were back in the, in, in uh, I don't know who produced them, but I mean, they were during the war years. Okay, so this was like sort of some patriotic. It uh, was, no, no, it was pressed into duty, yeah. Oh, wow. Were these um, feature-length films? Well, yeah, I think they were. Wow, I have to check that out. Sherlock Holmes versus the Nazis. It writes itself. <laughs> cool. Anyway, I don't know. I decided to go down that path a little bit and just sort of talk about some of the enjoyable Sherlock Holmes moments we've had. Dad and I have been, you know, there's a lethal disease out in the world right now, which is keeping us from doing this. But there is a board game called Watson and Holmes that we've been meaning to do. And that's another fun one that's sort of like Consulting Detective, but everyone's competing against each other. To, uh, to do. So a lot of great Sherlock Holmes experiences out there for one who wants to have them. Oh, yeah, you know, I am. Yeah, we, I mean, we talk in this podcast a lot about why does this character endure? And here it's kind of easy. This is a play along character. You get to solve mysteries with the best of the best. And because of Holmes's unimaginably enduring popularity, you get Moriarty along for the ride. And he's always going to be there in one form or another as these adaptations keep getting made. Yeah, you know, there's you another know. element to Holmes too. It's it's in a, many of the stories, and that is that he seeks to do justice in the case, and that may be sometimes not turning somebody in. That's a recurring theme where he doesn't always strictly follow what might be the harsh result of something because he's unraveled things. He knows what's going on, and he kind of, in some instances, will just let things stand. And that's that's a moral decision that he makes. It pops up a lot. You know, we've never done this, but his alignment would probably then be what? Neutral good? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, where he's not bound necessarily by yeah. the laws. He does what is right as he sees it. I'll do one more plug for a video game because we're in quarantine and people may need these diversions. But I thought a really good sort of Holmes simulator was this game called Sherlock Holmes. It's sort of awkwardly titled. It's called Sherlock Holmes Crimes and Punishments. Dad and I have played that a little bit. And oh, yeah. it does. It has that element that you're talking about where you get to sort of decide how to wrap up the case. It's not like there's a predetermined outcome. You as Holmes piece it together and then you can let somebody go if you're like, you know what, this guy doesn't really deserve it. So it actually has that element to it. It's yeah, pretty good. It, it's the opposite. We were talking about Chavert. It's the opposite of Chavert. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So much stuff. I think I just want to keep you on and talk about it. Dad, is there anything, uh, any final? Uh, no, I think that's, uh, we covered a lot. <laughs> well, I, you know, the only thing I want to say about Moriarty is if you have sort of a impervious hero, it's boring. So you need to challenge that hero. And Holmes is so impressive. You need to give him an equally impressive foil. I think that's right. When I think when, when Doyle thought that he was kind of wrapping up his thing with Holmes, he didn't want him to go out on a small note. It had to be the Napoleon of crime that as Holmes finishes his career, that's his last triumph, really. That was, I think, the thinking somewhat behind that. Well, uh, Dad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've heard it remarked that podcasts are just an excuse for men to have like conversations with each other. <laughs> 
Ben. I've, uh, I really enjoyed having you on. I brought on a lot of people that I just great. wanted to spend I, some time I, with. I enjoyed it too, I did. Great. Well, uh, we're going to let you go here. Uh, I guess in classic mystery fashion, we'll push you over the side of a balcony or something. And then Doug and I are going to deal with the rest of this. Uh, good. All right. Yep. Bye, Dad. Take care. Bye. Take care. Great. So uh, the lights went out, lightning flashed, and my dad was stabbed in the back. Uh, and now we just have all these anagrams here. everywhere. Now. What are we going to do with all these anagrams, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have a little bit of admin here to do. Doug, do you want to start with the sweet or the sour? Let's do the sour and then we'll end with the sweet. Oh, I think that is so wise. So uh, milestone for a podcast video, but we've received our first two-star rating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that just popped up. We do pay attention. And, you know, here's the thing about Apple Podcasts. You don't have to write a review. You can just be a coward and click a star. <laughs> In this case, two stars. Uh, if you think we deserve more than two stars, why don't you go to Apple Podcasts and click on, you know, at least four. I think we're at least worth that. Yeah, but uh, I just can't imagine the mindset of someone, a true Moriarty, who would <laughs> listen to two guys just having a good time and come by and be like, mm, let everyone know that I think this is worth two. I would I, never I, do that. My mind on this was a little different, which is like, you know, if you hate the thing, why not give it a one? But this person went to two, so there was some uh, redeeming factor. That's the thing that's <laughs> going to keep me up at night. You know, Doug is such a sweet guy. I might be terrible. I deserve it. He doesn't. That's uh, right. So, so I've got kids. Like, he's got kids, for God's sake. He's feeding them with the profits from this podcast. So, <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> so if you enjoy the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and, and leave us a review or a rating. Yeah. Just click a rating. And if you left that two-star rating, we're sorry that this free podcast that we do for fun disappointed you. Thank you, Karen, I assume your name is, for letting <laughs> us know. I only want us to think her name is Karen Dan. The game is afoot. <laughs> the Karen of crime. Uh, all right. So that was a milestone. Uh, we're def- our reach is definitely uh, beyond our friends and family at this point. So that's always exciting. Or is it? Ooh. Ooh. My mom's like, nah, I just think you could do better. Uh, <laughs> so didn't care for your last guest. Feedback. We did get some positive feedback I want to highlight. So this person had uh, tweeted to us. They had asked, this is from Haley Edwards or at like Autumn Fire on Twitter. Hi, Haley. Hope you enjoy the show. She tweeted at us asking how to leave a review on Google Podcasts because she's apparently not part of the uh, Apple ecosystem. And unfortunately, we responded to her. I let her know that Google Podcasts doesn't have a review feature. You may be able to do that through things like Stitcher, but Google, for some reason, doesn't let you do it. And she responded, well, I enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work from sunny England. And then she put a little rank. Oh, very so. nice. So thank Mario! you very much. England. <laughs> I think I just lost her. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, Doug has a very analog way you could help, which is just tell your friends. That's right. But please do tweet at us uh, at Podcast But Evil because we love to hear your thoughts. You know, if you've got villains you want to suggest or you think the title fight would go a different way or the fan casting, anything you really want to share with us, we'd love to hear. And if there are other members of my family you would like to hear from, please let us know. That's we'll right. Bring them on. Uh, and we've got some amazing stuff coming down the pike. So next week we are going to the world of Breaking Bad and we are covering Walter H. White. And we've got some cool guests for that. Dan, you want to talk about our guests? Well, I, you know, I always want to hold off and not promise anything. But okay. I think we have our biggest guests so far for that podcast. Let me just say that and we'll let you know if that gets cemented. 
I'm hoping it does. That'll be really cool. Yeah. So we're doing Walter White. After that, we are doing Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII. That'll be really cool. I'm excited for that one. Uh, and then I got... am lukewarm on that one. <laughs> <laughs> this is I one that sell. Doug is trying to sell me on this being a big one. So if you're a Final Fantasy fan, you better show up uh, and leave a five-star review, motherfuckers, because I have no idea who Sepha whatever is. Yeah, that will be interesting because uh, video game fans can be vicious so hopefully <laughs> oh, I do it well i'm so glad we could kick that hornet's nest yes we did uh we will so and then we mapped out i don't know how much we want to talk about this but we've mapped out october for all our halloween stuff i don't want to talk about it doug because i always right. passive aggressively make fun of you for <laughs> talking too far in advance about what we're going to do thus locking us in and making things very hard <laughs> logistically all right, so we'll but we do we have an october of fun planned here right. on podcast but evil we do so just to let you know we got great stuff so on our next episode we'll start to divulge some of the halloween stuff so look out for that it's going to be great you still found a way to promise something thanks <laughs> i'm sorry it, it will be at least three stars worth of my hope is october we're taking off it'll be a month of us not doing this show doug and i are excited about october it's obviously a time of villains and we have some fun ones planned for that so should yeah. be good all right i think that covers everything we got to cover dan so you ready to take this one home i'm ready doug gentlemen to evil clink clink Perhaps the clue's in Moriarty's name. Clever people often do that. Uh, Amity. Rarity. I've got it! His real name is Artie Morty. What the hell am I talking about?